0: Welcome to the Global Futures Podcast with me, Joel Sandu. Since the beginning of January 2019, Brazil has a new president in the form of Jair Bolsonaro, a right-wing, conservative, nationalist, whose belief in country, God, and anti-corruption swayed many to vote for him into Brazil's highest office. It's been less than a month into the Bolsonaro presidency, To speak to us about the state of political affairs in Brazil is my guest, Matias Specta, who joins us again exactly a year after our first conversation when we spoke to him about Brazil's political crisis and economic recession. To remind our listeners, Matias is an associate professor and associate dean of Fundação Getúlio Vargas's School of International Relations. He is one of Brazil's leading lights on matters of Brazilian foreign and domestic policies. Here is my conversation with him. Matthias, thank you very much for having us back in this uh, hot seat with you in the FGV. I remember we were speaking exactly a year ago, and uh, it's wonderful to have you on the Global Futures podcast again.
1: It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: As I said, it's been a tumultuous year since we last spoke, uh, since the beginning of 2019 this year. You now have a new president in the form of uh, Jair Bolsonaro. Could you just run our listeners through really quickly what were the main turning points uh, over the last year that led to Bolsonaro's victory?
1: So Bolsonaro's victory took everyone by surprise. He rode a wave of popular discontent and anger against the established political class. And to everyone's surprise, the traditional anti-Lula forces that were bound to do well in the election simply imploded. They just got 4% of the vote, giving Bolsonaro a huge advantage. So Bolsonaro's win is actually very solid. Not only did he win the vast majority of the vote, with a difference of beyond 10 million votes, but he also carried in his coattails the governorships of Brazil's most important states. São Paulo, Rio, Minas Gerais, and Rio Grande do Sul. This is a huge win. He starts his tenure with enormous popular support. You say it's a huge win, uh, and I agree. I mean, 10 million is quite
0: a lot. The country voted, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's like 55 to 45 percent. How divided is the country? Because this may be big, but it seems quite close as well. It's
1: down the middle almost. How, How divided is your sense? So if you ask most people, they will tell you Brazil is incredibly divided and polarized. But when you actually go through the measures of political polarization, the fact is that of course Brazil got polarized in the course of the election, that's what elections do. They pit candidates, one against the other, and people have to choose. But when you scratch the surface, Brazil is far less polarized than most Latin American societies and indeed less polarized than many countries in Europe and indeed in the United States. So you could look at effective polarization, the degree to which people say they would never ever under any circumstance vote for the opposition party. Levels in Brazil are relatively low. You could look at the way political parties divide themselves in Congress. And what you find in Brazil is that parties, even those at the extremes, tend to converge to the middle when push comes to shove, and when the executive starts handing out pork. So, although Brazil did experience a peak of polarization, as it does in every election, this is not a house divided. What Brazilians agree on, they agree that corruption is rotting the political system. They agree that security is a massive issue. We had 64,000 homicides last year. And people agree that the economic situation needs to be reversed. Brazil was in a technical recession for four consecutive years. We are now out of the recession, but the economy is not growing. It's simply sort of stable. Unemployment rates are very high. So these things, these themes have united the people, irrespective of whether they're pro-Lula or against Lula, pro-Bolsonaro or against him. You mentioned
0: corruption. This is also a topic we spoke about last time uh, during the podcast. One of Bolsonaro's policy priorities and campaign promises was to crack down on uh, corruption. And he kicked this off by not giving cabinet positions to conventional politicians. Instead, he looked at uh, technocrats, ideologues, and also the military. Do you
1: think this will help his fight against corruption? I think the answer is no, for two reasons. Uh, First of all, corruption in Brazil is not a problem of a rotten apple. It's not a problem that afflicts corrupt individuals. Corruption in Brazil is endemic. It's political corruption. This means that in order to run political campaigns effectively, politicians, left and right, need to engage in illicit activity to secure the funds to pay for campaigns. This is not different under Bolsonaro. Although his campaign was remarkably cheap, and indeed he ran on the anti-corruption ticket, he's had two corruption scandals break already. First of all, his chief minister is accused of illegal dealings, and now we know that his son who was elected senator for the state of Rio in the current election, is facing a brand new uh, corruption scandal himself. So it's very unlikely that we're going to see clean politics in Brazil unless there is a fundamental change in the laws that govern finances for campaigns. And that we're not seeing um, at all. Um, So... I am reluctant and I'm skeptical as to the prospects of the fight against corruption. Although, of course, Bolsonaro appointed to the Ministry of Justice Judge Sergio Moro, the chief operator of the Lava Jato anti-corruption probe. But check out Sergio Moro now that sir, he's serving in a government with two corruption scandals on day 20. He's been quiet about them. He's been glossing over them. He's behaving as a regular politician would.
0: Hamilton Maron, the new vice president, uh, was quoted saying, and I quote here, once we have the support of the public, Congress will follow, End quote. Will President Bolsonaro still be able to pass legislative reforms when he has basically sidelined so many politicians? And as you said earlier, they need to, to work together.
1: So that's a really interesting question, because what Bolsonaro is doing is challenging the traditional way of doing politics in Brazil, which basically means you have a minority president who needs to form a coalition and gets his coalition through pork and, we now know, a lot of illegal dealings. Bolsonaro promised to break with that. But what's the alternative to that? You know, one argument is, well, it's sort of plebiscitarian. Caesarism, as Max Weber would put it, is Bolsonaro going to a Facebook Live, mobilizing the base, getting the people to go out on the streets and protest. Can you get the Brazilian people to get to the streets and protest to pass a pension law reform that is deeply unpopular? It's a very unlikely proposition. And that's why... Come the first week of February, when the new legislature takes office, in all likelihood, I think, we are going to see Bolsonaro have little choice but to go back to the old ways, to actually start an alliance with traditional politicians. He's started already. He's been operating behind the scenes now to get a traditional politician elected as Speaker of the Lower Chamber, And he's given the green light for a very traditional politician who's facing several corruption accusations to run the Senate. During his campaign, Bolsonaro
0: called former president Luis Inácio Lula da Silva a drunkard and that he would, and I quote, uh, quote, (laughs) um, leave him to rot in jail, along with many other politicians, including uh, Fernando Haddad, who was from the Workers' Party and was running against uh, Bolsonaro. First of all, who are Bolsonaro's supporters? And second of all, how has this seemingly hateful and and, and cruel language resonated with them?
1: Really interesting question. Bolsonaro's support base is really varied and wide. You have people who are wealthier, people who are poorer, you have people throughout the country, although, crucially, the core... Northeastern part of Brazil, which, tend, which is the poorer part of Brazil, did not massively vote for Bolsonaro. That said, the support base is really quite wide. That's the first thing. Where does the language come from? It comes from two places. First of all, during the campaign, many people feared that if Fernando Haddad, Lula's candidate, were to win, he would issue a presidential pardon, letting Lula walk free. So part of Bolsonaro's argument to the effect that Lula should rot in jail are to do with positioning himself against what the PT candidate, the Workers' Party candidate, was saying at the time. But you're right to point out that the language is really brutal. Where does that come from? Well, I think Brazil in 2018 had something very similar to what we've seen in America and many places in Europe, which is the politics of anger rationality and rational calculations are not necessarily the thing commanding people to vote. People are voting with their gut and they are angry. And the Brazilian people have good reason to be angry. Not only the economy has been collapsing for five years, unemployment is very high, but also the corruption scandals are so massive affecting parties right and left that it's only natural that the people wanted to shake the system down. And they have... Bolsonaro has placed a lot of hope
0: on Paulo uh, Guedes, the new economic minister. Financial markets and investors have been cautiously optimistic about Brazil's economy and about the promised liberal economic reforms um, that will hopefully spearhead growth in the country. Uh, What will be the most important economic reforms that are necessary to improve the economy?
1: So Brazil is in a very difficult position now because fiscal deficit is so dire that unless there's a massive cut in public spending... Bolsonaro will have little choice in the next two years, but to devalue the currency very dramatically. That would bring inflation back. That would make his support base plummet. So he needs to pass reform. The mother of all reforms is pension reform. Pension, the pension system in Brazil is really one of the worst inheritances from the authoritarian period. It basically transfers money from poorer Brazilians to wealthier Brazilians. It serves not many people, but only a few privileged people. It's far more concentrated than the pension systems in most developed countries, and Brazil spends more money on that system relatively to GDP than does Japan without providing anything near the support for pensioners that Japan does. So breaking that is Bolsonaro's main challenge. The problem is the interest groups that benefit from that system are phenomenally powerful. So if Paulo Guedes were to succeed, he would have to break with traditional interest groups. Will Bolsonaro support him? We don't know, but the early signals are not very positive. One of the groups in Brazil that benefits most from the current unfair system are the military. Will Bolsonaro make the military hurt in order to signal to the market that he means reform? We don't know, but we will come February.
0: Ernesto Araujo is appointed as Brazil's new Minister of Foreign Affairs, And he's quite a controversial figure. He's outspoken about his support for U.S. President Trump um, and also for Viktor Orban in Hungary. Uh, He is seen as somewhat of an anti-globalist. Yet there is this promise for liberal market reforms which requires open markets. How do you explain the
1: seemingly contradictory message? So Bolsonaro's base is... Um, so varied that Bolsonaro needs to attend to different constituencies. One of them is the financial markets, and they need to hear a message of economic reform. But at the same time, Bolsonaro, remember, got elected with the backing of the evangelical denominations and the Christian denominations that are now very powerful actors in Brazilian politics, So appointments like Ernesto Araújo to the foreign ministry, but also our ministry, the new minister for family and human rights, the new minister for education, these are people that come from outside what's the traditional language Brazilian politicians resort to, but they've been very effective at mobilizing the base and signaling to the base that Bolsonaro means business. So, for instance, Ernesto Araujo makes constant references to God and to his interpretation of why there is a need to revive the place of God in politics. He's been very critical of Europe, saying that Europe has lost its religious vigor, and that that is undermining the West. All these notions that are so alien to Brazilians are now part of the game. But the reason for that is that a very significant chunk of the Bolsonaro electorate are appreciative of that kind of thinking. Do you think,
0: just to carry on on that note, that religion uh, and religious bodies will start to have even
1: more influence in politics now? It's happening already, no doubts about that. It's been happening in education reform, it's been happening in social mores, it's now a dominant theme in Brazilian public life. How is it How is it in education? Well, there's been proposals to reform textbooks across Brazil, there's been an emphasis on the role of family, nation and God at the expense of... Constitution, rule of law, and individual liberties and minority liberties, above all. So the sort of you know conservative, uh, verging on the illiberal side, um, movements that we've seen worldwide. Remember that in foreign policy, Bolsonaro's team referred to Steve Bannon as their guiding light. Let's stick with the
0: theme of foreign policy now, since you've mentioned it. Bolsonaro's, uh, Bolsonaro and his sons, along with Araujo, have all been urging for closer relationship with the U.S. Now, what would this mean for Brazil's relationship with China, for example, which is one of its biggest trading partners? And I ask this in light of the current uh, U.S.-China
1: trade tensions. So Bolsonaro is trying to take advantage of the fact that Donald Trump and his administration have revived their interest in Latin America by critiquing China and by trying to convince countries in Latin America to pick sides in the emerging Cold War, if you want, between the United States and China. Bolsonaro saw an opportunity in that. And as far as things go now, I think it's plausible to expect that when Bolsonaro meets Trump in the United States next March... Bolsonaro will also send signals to the effect that if there is a conflict between the U.S. and China across Latin America, Bolsonaro will take the side of the United States. Of course, whether he will be able to implement that or what that means in practice remains to be seen, partly because there are so many constituencies in Brazil that are pro-China. China is Brazil's single largest market for exports, but also China, Brazil enjoys a massive surplus, $20 billion with China. And for all the rhetoric of China coming to dominate Brazil that is now so prevalent among many Bolsonaro supporters, the fact is that the stock of investment China has in Brazil ranks at number 13 in a long list of foreign investors.
0: Some of our listeners may not be too familiar with Brazil's foreign policy. Could you give us just in very brief terms, an idea of what Brazil's foreign policy could look like under the new foreign minister.
1: So traditionally, Brazil tried to keep the United States at a distance. Brazil organized its foreign policy around the notion that South America should be an independent, sort of autonomous from the United States uh, sub-region of the world. And in the last 20 years, Brazil spent a lot of political capital building multilateral organizations and initiatives like the BRICS, like IBSA with India and and South Africa. Brazil tried to reform the UN Security Council alongside Japan, um, and Germany, and India. Um, All of that now is under threat. We don't know whether Bolsonaro will keep that alive or whether he will actually bandwagon with the United States. It hasn't been tried in over a generation and there are many people in brazil who would resist that movement not the least the military one of his in one of his early tv interviews bolsonaro said that he would not discard the possibility of hosting a us military base in brazil he then backtracked in a big way when leading military officers came out to denounce the president's proposition so we don't know What we have to remember is Brazil is as democratic a system as any other. The president does not run the show on his own. He needs to manage and walk a fine line between the constituencies that support him. And these are varied and they are contradictory as well. You,
0: of course, undoubtedly know that uh, when Bolsonaro was running his campaign to become president a lot of the rhetoric was quite strong against different communities and, and uh, also challenging uh, other countries. What do you think this is going to do for Brazil's soft
1: power? I think it's hurt Brazil's soft power enormously. Uh, and I think there is a very high likelihood that this sort of attitude will leave behind it a trail of destruction. I think the direction of traffic is negative. I don't see Brazil's soft power being revived anytime soon. The silver lining is, of course, that Brazil is an incredibly diverse, incredibly dynamic country. Uh, it's not possible in Brazilian society today to try and impose any kind of authoritarian, semi-authoritarian, sort of handmaid's tale version in the tropics, so the Brazilian people have overcome problems in the past. And I think at the end of the day, Brazil's very distinctive culture and flavor will remain, I hope. Final question
0: for you, and uh, I know we're coming to an end of this podcast. What are you hopeful under this presidency? I know it may be tough, but uh, what are you hopeful
1: for uh, Brazil? My biggest hope, and the one thing I, I reckon this administration can potentially deliver is economic reform. Brazil's economy is all geared towards reproducing inequality, transferring resources from the poorer Brazilians, which are the vast majority of the population, to wealthier Brazilians. Breaking those, that addiction to bad governance, I think, is the one legacy this administration could potentially leave behind it if they get their act together.
0: Matthias, thank you so much once again for joining us and the Global Futures Podcast. As always, it's tremendous to talk to you. Thank you so much.
1: My pleasure. Thank you very much.
0: This episode of the Global Futures Podcast was presented by me, Joel Sandu, and produced by Sonia Sugerbova from the Global Public Policy Institute. Our guest today was Matthias Spector. For a full list of Global Governance Futures products, including scenario reports, opinion pieces, interviews, and other podcasts, visit ggfutures.net forward slash analysis.